Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Edition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. As ever, I am your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA. That's Musical Theater College Auditions. And today, we have got a filthy sty of a show lined up for you. Dan Weschler of the amazing Pigpen Theater Company is on the show today, and he is such an awesome guy. Uh, Pigpen is in itself an amazing achievement and took a lot of remarkable people like Dan. And I think you can see in this episode how he was able to contribute to their success. Uh, Dan is also married to MTCA's own Katie Whelan, all of us meeting at Carnegie Mellon when we were there. Um, I hope all of you had a wonderful Mother's Day. I'm sorry I didn't reach out and say that the episode before. On these Tuesdays, I'm not even thinking about the weekend. So if, God forbid, this President's Day this weekend or something, I'm going to miss that as well. Um, but I spent a really fun weekend reuniting my daughter and her mother and getting to see Elizabeth um, absolutely slay in ragtime with the Boston Pops. Um She uh, played mother in Ragtime. She got a much-deserved mid-show standing ovation after singing Back to Before. And it was really cool to see her in her element with a whole new cast of great characters, making some new friends, etc. I also got to see the incredibly talented A.J. Shively, MTCA's own, as younger brother in that same production. And he was great. Um, We are working through a few more days of solo parenting while Elizabeth finishes up up there, and then I'm going to sleep for about two weeks. Um, Also, speaking of breaks, just a heads up that the pod will be taking a short hiatus this summer again. We're going to run a few rebroadcasts like we did last summer, previous interviews you may have missed, and it will be a shorter break than last summer, I promise. But always good for us to kind of pause and refuel the creative juices as we moved into season three now of the podcast, any changes, additions we want to make, etc., But before and after the break, we are going to have a few Broadway luminaries. I mean, a big names on. So please stay tuned for the next few episodes. Don't mean to drop these secret names, but they will be coming. Some very exciting um, big artist guests I think you'll really enjoy. Okay, let's get to this interview with Dan. I think you're going to notice we are occasionally joined by Dan and Katie's lovely dog on the pod. So if you hear a squeal or two, this is one of the few times that is not Solvi in the background making that noise. Um, But if you happen to listen really closely, see if you can catch MTCA coach Katie Wheeland bipping and bopping around their apartment as stealthily as a cat. Um, There's some really great comedy in watching her like slink under and then around the screen because at one point... She really thought the screen ended somewhere that it didn't. So like she was like trying to avoid an imaginary wall, even though she was fully on camera. It was very funny. So a great time will be had by all who choose to listen to the or watch the YouTube video, I should say, of this once we post that. So I think you really enjoy. But for now, some of his family, but mostly Dan Weschler. <laughs> 
Well, we are so excited to be joined by Dan Weschler. Uh, Dan has a BFA from Carnegie Mellon and is a founding member and head writer of the amazing Pigpen Theater Company. Uh, for those who've not heard of Pigpen, they're an amazing theater company. They've done shows like The Old Man and the Old Moon. They're currently developing Water for Elephants for an anticipated Broadway run. Um, and they also function as a band. They have released albums like Whole Sun and Bremen, um, which you can download wherever Dan will make the most money we'll get into there um they've also done movies they just were in uh ricky and the flash not too long ago a meryl streep um movie which maybe we'll t- chat about the comedy of that um and lots of other exciting stuff so please look up pig pen if you haven't done that yet dan welcome on the show how are you doing i'm great thanks so much for having me i'm excited to to talk to you the honor is mine and i think you know especially as soon as we started doing these little um deep dives on specific topics. You were immediately at the top of my list of someone I really wanted to talk about creating your own work. I mean, I think you really have brought an artistry to your approach that I think many people talk about um, and they say this is what they want, but not everybody actually goes in and makes it happen. So we'll dive into that today. Um, but I'd love it if you take me back to when you started thinking about all this around 16, 17, maybe especially when you started thinking about college you know, what were you thinking about in terms of your career and what you might have wanted or what you wanted specifically from a collegiate education if you didn't know for sure what the career was going to go? But how did you end up at Carnegie Mellon? What, what led you to wanting that as a school? By the time I was 16, I was already pretty certain that I wanted to pursue a career in theater. I could go into how that came to be, but that would take us back to like you know, age five. I said um, 16, 17 and nothing before, yeah. Daniel, nothing. So before. we'll start right there. Um, <laughs> and was not a big fan of my public high school in Palmyra, Pennsylvania. Uh, and they didn't have a lot to offer in the uh, realm of arts. Although apparently since then they've gotten way better, according to my parents who see all of the shows there. Um, <laughs> They're still critics. So, They're still going to let you know. Yeah, certainly. So uh, I started going to a, an arts magnet school um, called the Capital Area School for the Arts, which was then in like the basement of a church in Harrisburg. Uh, but it, it was this really cool environment of just um, cross-disciplinary, you know, there was like, there, were, there was the theater department and the film department and the dance department, but every year they would put on, you know, this big collaborative show that just kind of combined all of these different um disciplines into this weird collage of stuff. And when you say different disciplines, just in case people don't know what that means, like, are you talking about yep. music? Is it some of the stuff we'll talk about with Pigpen with puppetry and dance? And, yeah. I mean, how yeah, how many disciplines are we talking? Yeah. So I think the departments were dance, theater, music, uh, visual arts, and film. Mm-hmm. So the visual arts department would be, you know, creating props or backdrops for things. And then the film department would be creating projection stuff and all of these different worlds kind of colliding to make this big, weird, ungainly statement. And I think so that was like my first really exciting taste of total theater where everyone kind of had their hands on all of these different parts of the process. And Mm -hmm. then that continued. I went to the Pennsylvania governor's school for the arts um which was a similar environment in that you know it was these siloed departments that's really kind of gotten each other's business and and you know we were all seeing each other's work all the time and finding ways to kind of expand our comfort zones Mm -hmm. and i think the feeling of that just sort of like full throttle creativity where we were just making things really quickly and resourcefully and uh 
and just the you know the excitement of that I think is what really stuck with me as I started to look for uh, schools. I think before that you know I had thought of myself as an actor primarily, um, and then after those experiences when I went to look for uh, college, you know one of my priorities when I started the search was to find a program that would encourage or allow kind of multiple focuses. And I think Mm -hmm. initially I was really looking for somewhere that had, you know, like a dual um, Mm -hmm. acting and directing or acting and playwriting. And there weren't a ton of those. I I think, you know, Boston University was doing something Mm -hmm. along those lines back then. And SUNY Purchase at least told me that they were, they would, you know, accommodate that. (laughs) Um, But uh, at the end of the day, you know, Carnegie Mellon, who was very upfront about, you know, no, you're going to be an actor or, Uh you know, if you come here, um, my visit there and my observation of the school and, and kind of the environment just sort of gave me the feeling that I was going to get what I, I needed there. You know, even though it, on paper, it wasn't that exactly. It's so interesting because that is such a, you know, our students uh, just passed the decision day. So we're just sort of announcing all of our, where people got in. And this episode will really air a little bit later. But, you know, so often we talk about the checklist and you write down your pros and cons. And, you know, what you've described to me so far, I would go, well, that's not a student who's going to end up at a very conservatory style (laughs) school like Carnegie Mellon, especially a very focused on only acting as opposed to, you know, there are schools that have speak more about interdisciplinary and and also just more liberal arts in general, which might give you more flexibility. Um, but mm-hmm. not at all surprising that you go, but the fit just feels right. You know, I, I could have described this person and then this is the person I fell in love with. And yeah, you know, that is what it is. Yeah, it's really true. You know, I think it's um, and it turned out to be completely correct because I'm not even sure if I knew at the time about the student theater festival that they mm-hmm. have there, the playground festival, which is, you know, pretty much exactly what I was describing before yeah. where, you know, everyone just kind of makes stuff. I, um, I wondered if that's what had led you to Carnegie Mellon. I was like, it's because you guys, you know, we'll talk about it. I'm gonna give you more compliments later. Don't you worry. But, but Pigpen really is like the golden child of playground and about any of these kind of um, programs. It's like, this is what they're looking for is for seven people to get together, make incredibly artistic stuff. And then of course it turns into something commercially successful. It's so cool. But um, I, before we leave the, the stretch for college, was there mm-hmm. at 17 or at 18, as you're looking, was there um, any musical interest for you? Because you ended up as, as an acting major at Carnegie Mellon, right? But but you now yeah. sing and play instruments and are in a band and compose Broadway musicals. So w- was there anything part of you that was uh, um, musically inclined back then? Yes. Um, I was in a band called Fairway uh, yes. in high school, uh, which was um, kind of like a, I don't know, a pop punk heavy on the pop side, uh, <laughs> light on the punk. <laughs> there was a little punk sometimes it was me. And then everyone else in the band was from the music department of the the school that I went to. Uh-huh. So, you know, I was kind of, I, I guess they couldn't find a single person who played keyboards in, in the music department, which gives you a sense of how small that school was. <laughs> um, yep. that was like my first time being in a band and, you know, touring mm-hmm. around playing I don't know, ice rinks or wherever it was we were going. Um, But, you know, everyone else in the band, I I was fine, but everyone else was really very good at their, you know, their instruments. And Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, kind of this aspirational thing for me. Uh, And so just the the feeling that I got from that kind of performance versus, uh, you know, being in a play, being in a musical, Mm -hmm. I think was 
just even more concentrated and addictive than, you know, the usual mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. kind of uh, experience. And I, I was really, I found I was able to kind of lose myself in a way that I have a much harder time doing uh, when I'm, you know, acting, when I'm of doing course. a role. No. I want to dive deep into Pigpen, but before, even though we've had enough Carnegie Mellon grads, too many Carnegie Mellon grads on the thing, before we get to the Pigpen side of it, just tell me a little bit about your kind of non-Pigpen Carnegie Mellon experience. Give me a a couple words of what was the acting um, training experience like for you, absent Pigpen? It was intense. Uh, The first year especially was really, um, you know, it could sometimes feel like throwing yourself against a brick wall, um, Mm -hmm. just trying to figure out, you know, really how to just kind of get into this headspace that felt, you know, just out of reach. You were being given all of these different tools. And I think at the time I thought that, you know, I had to like excel at all of them. You know, I had Mm -hmm. to, you know, all of these different kinds of ways into a role needed to be, you know, in my tool belt as, you know, things that I could just pull out and use. And it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized, oh, no, this was really like kind of like a tasting, you know, Mm -hmm. of all of the different ways that you can find your way in. And what I discovered is that there there are certain ways of working that I just gravitate towards, you know, and a lot of that is um, surprising for me, movement based. uh, Mm -hmm. I don't consider myself much of a mover, but you know, that's certainly the fastest way to get me to stop thinking is to, uh-huh. you know, make outside me to, in allows you to calm the, the brain yeah. outside in is definitely. Yeah. And viewpoints, uh, which, you know, for those that aren't familiar is this kind of dance theatrical language of, um, different just focuses that you kind of let your mind, uh, settle on while you're, you're doing these kinds of movement improvisations. Um, I found to be really inspiring and kind of um, you know, I, it's, uh, when you're working creatively, I feel like you're always looking for, you know, you always have your epiphanies in in the shower, you know, mm-hmm. it's never while you're like actually sitting down to write, you know, it's while you're doing the dishes or water is involved somehow for sure. There's always, it's gotta be water. Yeah. <laughs> you can be in the garden, whatever. <laughs> but, um, and I think, uh, viewpoints ended up feeling like that a way to get mm-hmm. into that frame of mind, mm-hmm. but with a focus. I think I was kind of socially awkward at the beginning of college, uh, which makes it sound like I'm not still socially awkward, but I absolutely <laughs> am. Uh, so I think, you know, the kind of intense nature of, you know, working with a scene partner, you know, extracurricularly was kind of a lot for me back then. Just uh-huh. um, that kind of one-on-one, let's crack this together. Uh, and kind of create a relationship was tough, um, but rewarding. Um, I love it. Something you said at the beginning, you, you were saying you're chasing, um, I think you said a state of mind. I'm, not, I'm, not be, I'm paraphrasing you a little bit here, but you're sort of chasing mm. a state of mind that was always outside of reach. Was that, you think, for you, what your the weight of your own expectations? Or was it about, I see classmates that seem to be in a place that I want to be, you know, was it, do you feel you were pulled by your classmates or was it your own expectation that was sort of saying, I'm just out of reach? I think it was, it was both. It, I, it was certainly, there are people that you watch them in performance and they seem to have this ability, this sort of natural ability to surprise, not just their audience, but themselves, you know, and I guess that's kind of, that's what happens when you're present, 
Um, Mm -hmm. I remember one of the first pieces of, I think it was probably Barbara Mackenzie Wood, who was the head of acting back then. Um, And uh, she just talked a lot about, you know, being presence, Mm -hmm. present and finding your way to presence. And, and presence became this kind of like word that haunted me Mm -hmm. um, while I was, you know, busy planning all of the different ways that I could be present. Um, yep. Yep. In the future, and, you know, I'll be it, so present in a little bit. I'm yeah, telling I'm you. I'm going to get I... there. Like this is just freshman year. I've got three more years. Uh-huh. Acting in college was so much more about unlearning, I think, than it was mm-hmm. about learning. You know, it was about finding the confidence and freedom to let go rather than, you know, build up this like structure of, you know, technical ability. Um, it's, yeah, so well said. And I do think, you know, not surprising that that's where you were living for a lot of your years. So this conversation Ethan and I have both had, Ethan's uh, one of my best friends who I host another podcast with. But um, I think, you know, as more intellectual actors, you know, mm. if you approach it that way, it feels like you are always searching for that presence. And I think if you're, especially when you're young, you can spend time going, Oh, those are the good actors. Those are the real actors. I'm this sort of intellectual fraud that like, yeah. I'm just fooling them with my brain or whatever that, but they they <laughs> right. seem to really be in it, you know? And then I think as you grow, you also see like, I mean, there's elements of that that are true, that there are people who are so incredibly in their body, so in the moment, who really mm-hmm. plan very little, but that also there are flaws to that, that there's things for them to chase too, of, of going, oh, I've really, I've ended up in yeah. a weird rabbit hole because I didn't plan any of this, you know? Yeah. The grass is always greener. The grass Absolutely. is always greener. Um, let's get into Pigpen a little bit. So again, for anyone who isn't familiar, Pigpen is this kind of amazing achievement. Um, you know, I, I mentioned it's sort of the quintessential example of what the intention of a playground, or now many schools have these playground-like programs, ways of going, how do we sort of foster creativity, right? We'll open up the possibility for people to create their own work. And it's like, what percentage of people actually do create their own work? But you did, you guys did make, and we'll talk about some of the specific work. But can you tell me a little bit about the formation, the foundation, like it's, did it happen with an intention of we are starting the three of us or the seven of us, excuse me, are we starting this right now um, and making this, you know, this is going to be what's a, a band or it's going to be a theater company. Like what was the experience of forming it um, as it started? It was really this festival that I think precipitated it because, you know, I think it was, it happened in the, um, the fall that year. So it was like right after we got to school. And this um, was your freshman year. Of school. Yeah, freshman year. Yeah, uh, we we hadn't really, you know, some people had made friends, but you know, I, I kind you of had, certainly hadn't. Yeah, I certainly hadn't, and That's I had, you know, social awkward as you were. <laughs> yeah, no, I had, you know, people who I sat next to in class, but we weren't, you know, friends yet. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, one of the guys in the company, Matt Nuremberger, uh, I think he just sort of decided to grab an application and sort of just start walking around with it and saying, you know, do you want to put your name on this? Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's make something. Um, So, you know, the seven of us who wrote our names down ended up, you know, in a room trying to figure out what we were going to do. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think we, the very first thing we did together was, you know, like a, campfire storytelling game where you know it's that like one sentence story game where everybody Mm -hmm. adds a sentence you know that was what we knew at the time and uh so we told this story uh it was like a ghost story um kind of an appalachian feeling you know Mm -hmm. haunted 
tragedy thing. And, um, and then we set that aside and, and, and went to work writing a play together. And, you know, four days later, we had this absolute mess of nothing that had like the ambitions of a, you know, like a fantasy doorstop novel and the actual coherence of a pudding. And <laughs> we looked at that and we were like, well, we certainly can't do anything with this. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, well, that story we told at the beginning of the week was pretty good. What do we, what do we just do that? So we did, we took that, which ended up being the plot of a show called the hunter and the bear, which we've mm-hmm. since rewritten and restaged a couple times. Um, and we combined that with just some of the exercises that we'd been learning in our movement class. Uh, so mm-hmm. we were doing viewpoints, um, and, you know, we discovered that some of us had some musical talent. So, you know, people would be playing along on guitar, or banjo. And um, and I think we like, you know, pulled a couple of little cover songs from, I think we did Keep on the Sunny Side was the mm-hmm. first song we played in a show together um, because we were all big fans of uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um mm-hmm. And then, so we had this weird little 20 minute folktale movement piece that had all of the um, kind of elements of what would become our theater company. So it had music and it had shadow puppetry and it had puppets. The other thing that happened just before that was this great festival in Pittsburgh called the Festival of Firsts. Um, mm-hmm. Was it the first? It, it was what it was either the Festival of Firsts or it was called something else, but it was the you know, International Theater Festival. Um, where all of these amazing companies came from all over the world and put on their shows. And we had saw, we'd seen a show called, um, well, it was a company called Suitcase Royale from Australia. And it was a three person theater company that played, you know, live music, very kind of Tom Waitsy sounding songs while telling this strange little folktale and pulling out all of these cool little puppets made out of junk and you know their set was like a hollowed out uh, bureau uh, and which you know they turned into like a submersible you know all of Mm -hmm. these different things that you know and the whole thing had this kind of like lamp lit aesthetic of you know warm light and shadows and uh and so we just pretty much tried to make something like that and um and that that show, which happened in one of the rehearsal studios, uh, you know, we got, you know, it was freshman year, so we weren't getting a ton of positive feedback yet. And <laughs> that's kind of mm-hmm. part of the the game plan is, you know, you can't, you don't want, you don't want students thinking they, you know, they've got nothing to learn. So you can't really, you can't give them to a lot of B's and C's in freshman acting. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. we did this show and the response from, you know, our faculty who saw it and from you know fellow students was you know this was awesome and this is what theater should be and mm-hmm. we were like oh cool uh whoops um mm-hmm. let's do this forever i guess and you did from that moment were you like we are now doing this like i know it, then each playground it was like the anticipated thing it was like you know and i only i guess i overlapped for two playgrounds with you but it was like this is the thing oh my god like but it really grew into being this what's pigpen gonna do for playground but but was it then also expanding into the professional world already in school um 
for the first couple of years, it was really, you know, what we did with our free time, um, which gives you a sense of what, what nerds we were, but, um, you know, we would be, we'd get out of class and we'd, you know, hang out at someone's apartment and make little puppets and write songs and stuff like that. And, uh, I think it was after our, it might've been after our freshman year, I think uh, one summer, a, a few of us went to a little theater in, uh, Chicago where um Matt had previously performed and you know and workshopped a mm-hmm. little show which is kind of like an ap- apocryphal pig pen show because it only had 3 of us and it was um you know it had some of the same elements but it was you know not quite the same and and that was you know I think we got paid a little bit for that but uh our junior year, we took one of the shows that we had done and we submitted it to the New York City Fringe Festival. And uh, and we went and did the show there. And and that was our first, you know, kind of trial run with, you know, a mm-hmm. quote unquote real audience that wasn't just our friends and family and professors. And uh, we ended up winning, you know, I don't know what the what they called it, but, you know, the like best show award mm-hmm. for the the fringe top honor for play two years in a row is what I read in the bio. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So we did that and we met, you know, some producers um, and we sort of started, you know, that we kind of had a tiny little foothold into, you know, New York city, which we were just Mm -hmm. so, you know, excited and uh, amazed by. And now this is right Um, before senior year, you're about to go back to school. Yeah. And so we went back to Mm -hmm. school and then, um, and then we did the fringe again the next summer. Um, but how does this relate to? There are seven of you, right? Seven mm-hmm. actors, all of whom auditioned for an elite acting school. S- some of whom may have had the designs on interdisciplinary, some stuff, but at least some of whom might have been like, I want to be on TV or whatever, right? Like, how yeah. did that mesh now? I- I'm having gone through that very, like, very stressful, very ego laden, you know, process of, you know, it's like you're, announcing yourself to the world with one of these showcases if for those of you who haven't done one of them yet how is that happening in the context of also announcing pigpen to the world and i mean it, now mm-hmm. it seems looking backward you're like well of course stick with this incredible company but it feels like back then there some people must have said all right well that was fun in college but i want to go be a tv star i want to go you know do my professional acting career which is not going to have to do with pigpen was there any of that sort of stress or fr- frustration or uncertainty there was a little bit, but I think by and large, you know, one of the things we did when we went to New York for showcase was we, we set up, a, a you know, a weekend run of one of our shows, um, at, um, uh, Barrow street theater, mm-hmm. um, because we had met, uh, the guy who, who owned and ran that, uh, theater. Um, and, you know, I think we were all talking at that time, you know, along the lines of, you know, showcase is great. Let's all, you know, do that. Um, but we already, you know, we've got like a head start mm-hmm. uh, with this thing, you know, that's already um, happened and, you know, had a little bit of press. And so, you know, I think we were all thinking of it as just like the smart play was to take this this company and, and keep, you know, working on it. And we, we actually had a, you know, our first job offer collectively for acting or whatever else was, you know, 
a run of one of our shows in Boston um, mm -hmm. with um, Company One. And so, you know, at that point, it's safe to say we were just following the money. Not that there was much money, but, you know, <laughs> there was a job. and But there's interest, professional interest. Yeah, Right. So we did that. You say that's that's smart, and I think it is smart, but I just do think yeah. it's not obvious. I think I think it is a rare group of seven people where not at least two of them are going to say, yeah. great, great, great. I got to work on my own personal buzz because I'm not going to be. Very true. I'm not going to build my career through Pigpen. But it, I think it is a, a testament to you guys that you at least stuck together, even if there was some of that friction at, at times that you, you know, that you did stick together through it all. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of positive encouragement and especially from other creators, writers, actors who we mm -hmm. met, you know, in the business, you know, they all kind of told us, you know, this is what everyone's looking for is for mm -hmm. people who they can work with, who they trust and who are all kind of, you know, pulling at least in the same general direction. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not to say, you know, certainly uh, some of the guys, uh, ended up going to LA for a couple of years, um, or at least a uh -huh. year. Um, everyone was certainly, you know, pursuing their own things, yeah. but uh, Pigpen just kind of kept pulling, pulling us back together. You know, when you talk about the seven of you and how credit is shared, I mean, obviously it is impossible in a group of seven, it's possible in a group of two or three, but it's especially mm -hmm. impossible in a group of seven to have exactly equal contributions or exactly yeah. equal shares of the limelight. Like it feels like you guys are a company that does this as well as anyone I know, but still there must be some frustrations of going, how do you do this? How do, how do we share finances and how do we share, mm. you know, credit and how do we share, you know, um, because not everyone is doing everything the same, you know, how, how did that yeah. work? How did you have those conversations? Um, I think early on, um, you know, I was probably the biggest proponent of, you know, let's just as an experiment, you know, <laughs> and this is going to sound culty, uh, let's just, you know, subsume our identities into the company for a minute here. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> let's all like share the profits equally and share the credit equally and not really like give too clear a portrait of, you know, who does exactly what in inside, because if we can get, you know, the company to stand out, then, you know, all ships will rise. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's a lot of that that's true. You know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of what we did together, you know, was very sort of collage in that, you know, everyone would write a little bit of something. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we would do all of these improvisations together, and someone would throw a song out there. And, and then, you know, eventually we fell into a rhythm where, it, you know, I would collect all of that stuff and, you know, kind of tie it together into something that, you know, felt more or less cohesive mm -hmm. and, and, you know, unified. You know, I never felt like my job was, I, I guess I, I, I felt like anyone could do that and, um, and sometimes did, you know, I, I, there mm -hmm. were a couple of shows that I wasn't around for where, you know, somebody else would step up and take that role. It got more challenging as we went on together, uh, especially when it came to, you know, how we support ourselves, uh, financially. Right. Right. Once there's real money involved, I mean, this, a Broadway contract, if that's coming, uh, uh, these movie yeah. contracts, these, I mean, there's money there now. And how, how do you, and, and money and credit and claim and things that people, you know, things that tickle our egos and our bank accounts. 
as far as the like credit and acclaim goes, it, it is it really does feel like nobody is like especially or at least obviously ego driven in that regard. Like everyone seems mm-hmm. to feel pretty good about letting the company take the accolades and letting, you know, the work speak for itself. Um but the money is harder, you know, the money is um for a while we were just purely you know, dividing everything that came in seven mm-hmm. ways because to keep track of exactly what work everyone had done at any given mm-hmm. moment, you know, to keep that that balance sheet was just so complicated and difficult that we kind of just said at the end of the day, everyone's done, you know, the same amount of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and more and more, you know, we, we tried to find other things to tie it to. So, you know, time and presence in a room was a big factor, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in the room making something, then you're getting paid for that time. Mm-hmm. But even that has become challenging. That's right. I think we're always in conversation about that stuff. And, you know, we're never really, we've never settled into a single model, I guess. Of These are incredibly difficult conversations to have in your 30s. Yeah. I mean, in your young 20s, to be sort of adulting at that level is... It's really impressive. And I think it's, uh, again, the reason I keep bringing it up is not because I'm like, where are your big egos? You should all have egos. If anything, you know, the last episode we just did with Sean Allen Krill, we talked a lot about generosity, especially on stage, what it is to be generous in terms of serving the story. And there's something that is, again, it's laudable about the generosity uh, of what you just said, of what can we lift up Pigpen as opposed to lifting up ourselves? Because as soon as one person does the other thing, everyone's going to be like, well, wait, 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 wait. But what about my credit? I did do this and I did that. And then, you know, the band breaks up and all those things that, that happen. But mm. um, that there's something, there's clearly you guys were, were experts at generosity, even while you're still figuring out what's actually fair and all those things, which sounds like it's still happening. But yeah. um, it's just something worth lauding, I think. Well, um, Let's talk a little bit about, you know, we have many multi-hyphenate artists on the pod, uh, just like yourself. Um, but it's, you know, it's now I think normal enough to hear an actor, playwright, director as sort of a, a multi-hyphenate person, but really interesting from the perspective of a group, right? Obviously you have theater company in your name, so people are going to think of you as a theater company, but I think probably more people now know you as a band than as a theater, I mean, my little brother who bought my dad a T-shirt of Pigpen Theater Company because he's a fan, not for me, right? I mean, I, he may have from CMU, but he listens to you guys as an indie band, mm-hmm. you know? He thinks of you like that's what you are. Like, it was, he had to be like, wait, they, oh, they do shows, right, 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 right. Yeah. But like, he listens to you just music. So I guess, how do you how do you sort of label the hyphens of Pigpen? And, and especially when you're pitching yourself to write a Broadway musical or, you know, all those different things. Yeah, I mean, the band thing happened fairly early on in our professional lives together and it quickly became you know a really fast way to just expand you know the fan base because theater is so slow and takes so long and is so tied to you know a single location Mm -hmm. at that time we were lucky enough to to sign with an agency who was willing to represent us both for our theater stuff, but also for our music. And so we had, you know, a booking uh, agent who, you know, was able to put together these tours for us where we would go out and, uh, you know, play rock venues um, around the country. And, you know, that was, first of all, just, you know, immensely cool feeling to do. Mm -hmm. Gave everyone, again, that full performance experience that you really can't 
match um, with anything else. And it just gave us fans, you know, all over the country, you know, in, in, in little pockets. Um, and we've seen, you know, people who know our music, you know, come out from uh, cities where they've seen us play uh, to see our theater, you know, in one of the several, you know, larger cities, theater markets that we've done our shows. Um, the the line that we would give at our concerts for a long time was that we were a band and a theater company, mm-hmm. which seemed appropriate. There was a surprising amount of confusion from at least the venues where we would go, where, you know, mm-hmm. we would show up and, and, you know, these places that were really like rock clubs, they didn't, they, you know, they didn't ha- put on theater, mm-hmm. you know, would be like, all right, so what do we have to like? load a set in or what are, what is happening now and <laughs> like no no we'll be playing songs let's be clear there was you know i guess a little bit of identity uh confusion then but mostly we just found you know uh at the beginning we were getting people who knew our theater to come to our concerts and then eventually that kind of mm-hmm. reversed and we had mm-hmm. people who knew our music coming to see our theater and you know it's it's obvious why it's just you know so much easier to share music and uh, and we you know by doing these little miniature tours, which we were lucky enough to go out on, we we also had the opportunity to go on you know some some you know kind of music recording podcasts and radio shows uh-huh. and all of these things that you know we just wouldn't have had access to through just our theater alone. I think there's just like a wider pool of publicity around music in that way. And not right around YouTube and those kind of things, but not so far Mm -hmm. away, right? It it would only really started in college for us. So, or for me, so, you know, you'd be pretty new and you're putting Bremen out on YouTube or whatever. It's, that's just when music is really being found that way and people are sharing stuff and all, all that stuff. Yeah, very true. Can yeah. we talk about the musicality of it all a bit? So, you know, you said a couple of us played instruments. You were in a band in high school, right? Um, as you sort mm-hmm. of were discovering this in Playground all those years ago. But clearly, given the level of musicality now now present within the group, unless it's all just masked and masqueraded among different artists, was there mm-hmm. a lot of like, you have to go learn this instrument for the sake of our sound. We need a banjo. We need a, a backup banjo. We need a, like, how did that work in terms of you guys creating yeah. that among the seven of you? Banjo was never a problem. We have a surfeit of banjo players for some reason. <laughs> but we did have, you know, so everyone had some kind of background. Everyone was in a band in high school, you know, at some point. Mm-hmm. But some people were, you know, more serious instrumentalists than others. And I think the the most, the best example of someone who just like, well, really, Matt, I, I'm going to call Matt and Curtis out as the two people who really just went away and like learned their instrument from scratch, you know. Matt, I remember I was living with him in Shadyside and I had like my dad's just beat up, terrible, painful to play acoustic guitar sitting in my room gathering dust. And he just sort of took it one day and went away and came out a few months later, a guitar player. Hmm. And now, you know, I think he's probably just the most technical, you know, he's guitar one. And he's 
he's a really, really good guitar player. And Curtis, uh, similarly, you know, I think, I don't think anyone had to prompt him. I think he just said, we don't have a bass. <laughs> we need a bass. And so he started playing bass. It's, it's, I mean, this now episode I think will release not directly after Sean's episode, but so much of what we're talking about with generosity in the stage, we, you know, I sort of did a little takeaway on like, what does this moment need right now? And something that you, you know, talk about yeah. often in a theater rehearsal of just like, a lot of people are voicing a lot of strong opinions. Do I need to add one into the mix right now? Is that what this moment needs? You know, but like talk yeah. about an extreme example of like, we need a base. Can I be the person who fills that need? It's just like such a valuable skill set as an actor. If you can go, I think yeah. I can learn. I can spend the time to do that. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was definitely helpful. What about the puppetry of it all, right? So puppetry, and and I'm sure there's also some other things that I I'm, I'm wouldn't necessarily have the language to speak to and what makes the unique the unique experience of a pig pen show with between the lighting and the puppetry and the movement and the music is really a, a pretty amazing experience. But did that all just come from that playground experience? Did many of you, or from having watched that that international show, with, where where does all that additional stuff that often is part of a pig pen show exist? Yeah, I think, again, there were a few members of the company who had a just natural aptitude for puppetry and for really for movement and hyper-specific controlled movement. And that means visual art too, right? Because you're creating the puppets. At the beginning, yeah. And I mm-hmm. mean, that still continues to be true in, 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 in pockets, but you know, I would be remiss in not calling out Lydia Fine, who's really acted as kind of like a sonographer for us and that she had this kind of she kind of built our aesthetic uh you know the first show we did was just us and i think everything after that we brought her and a lighting designer bart courtright who really helped establish you know the world of our lighting uh, and made all of these you know handcrafted weird lighting elements for us so the two of them have have definitely you know, done a lot to up our game in that department. But Ryan Melia is is a really good, you know, visual artist. He he draws and he paints and he's, you know, good at kind of character design. So he was making a lot of the little shadow puppets in the beginning. And yeah, everyone had, you know, you know, it was all kind of amateurish in that, you know, we had to Google how to make paper mache or something, you know, when we, <laughs> but, you know, definitely some, some of us have taken more of an interest and more, you know, spent more time with it than others, you know. Well, and it's a very, it's a kind of deceiving thing about your aesthetic. I remember this from school of like, it feels handmade. It feels, it's a cool, the aesthetic still though remains very quotidian every day walking around the streets of Brooklyn. And then all of yeah. a sudden it's like, oh my God, but the sound is, it really blows well, you away. Well, that's really, you know, I think the real skill that we collectively have as a group is leaning into our strengths and adapting to our strengths, you know, even when it comes to things like, you know, singing together, you know, not, you know, we had varying levels of vocal talent, you know, Ryan Melia, for anyone who's heard him sing, you know, has the voice of an angel and always and has. he really and, sounds like he could be a rock star. Like he, like if he did yeah. a different career, he could just be a, cho- I mean, he is in some ways a, a pop star, but it's just like yeah. <laughs> when you're in the middle of an acting degree, you're like, why are you here? Why, why aren't you in LA singing? Yeah. Like, yeah. well, the first time he pulled out a guitar and sang for us, that's kind of the reaction we all had. But, mm-hmm. but you know, the rest of us have, you know, ears and are 
<laughs> relatively, you know, we, we have decent ability to hear when mm-hmm. we're on or off pitch, but mm-hmm. you know, it was still a lot of like coming up with the harmonies together was, you know, discovering, you know, where everyone's voice sits and and what's comfortable for people to sing and stuff that, you know, in the, happens when you're working on a musical but is not quite as flexible and not quite a, as bespoke to Mm-hmm. you know a group of people singing together mm-hmm. yeah so you know that really has gone a long way it's just kind of this yeah so well said leaning into your own strengths okay let's take a quick break and on the back end we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the generative creative process with you and mm-hmm. we're also going to play a very silly game with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're back with Dan Weschler. And I do want to dive a bit deeper into kind of this idea of creating your own work, especially in this group setting. We have an upcoming podcast with a more traditional kind of playwright, you know, white blank page, begin to play with dramatic structure. But so I'm interested in hearing about that process as it relates to you too. But especially in this, as you mentioned, group generative, people are throwing out ideas and you're putting together a, a create your own work thing. I'd, I'd love to get into this. But before we, we dive into the, the exact process for you, I'd love to kind of hear just in general for our listeners, many of whom are training to be actors and haven't gone to writing school, you know, or they're training in theater if they've gone to a more general degree. What sort of gave you and you, the collective you, the audacity and the confidence to say, I am a creator, I am a writer, right? I mean, obviously you are an awesome writer, all of you, but I think you especially, but did you ever struggle with some of that imposter syndrome of like, I trained to be an actor. Like what gives me the right to be this person who's writing these plays? Oh, certainly. I mean, I still do. You know, I'm, I'm friends with lots of, you know, writers who are like writers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the sense that, you know, you know, I really, in a lot of ways, I consider myself more of a, I don't know, I, I've said like collage, collage artist mm-hmm. before, you know, the thing that I really like doing is taking like different ideas that kind of come from outside of me and trying to thread them together in a way mm-hmm. that makes them feel like, you know, they emerged organically from each other. Mm. And it, so there's a bit of improvisation to it, but, you know, I think we all have, struggled with, you know, imposter syndrome born of, you know, the like jack of all trades, master of none kind of, you know, which we've taken as a virtue in a lot of respects, you know, 
I think, you know, the, the, the sum of the parts being greater than the parts themselves has always been, you know, just what theater is to us, you know. Mm-hmm. But then when you're contracted to do, hey, we're going to write the music of a Broadway musical. Now, it's yeah. like, you're not a jack of all trades. Now you're you're a composer, basically, right? You're yeah. Lin-Manuel at this point, like who himself, yeah, right. I guess, is a jack of all trades. But but you're being contracted yeah. to do this specific thing. Yeah, yeah. I think you do have to kind of convince yourself that, you know, that there's some degree of, you know, broad principle that applies to everything you do, that you bring to everything you do that doesn't rely purely on, you know, like technical depth, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, every room I've been in working on this musical, there've been at least four other people who have a depth of knowledge about music that just, you know, eclipses my own. And so, you know, I think I'm just starting to get to the point where I feel comfortable talking about music with these kinds of people and, you know, using my own language and not trying to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Just kind of dropping that sense. Right. Not self-flagellating. Like, well, I don't really know anything. Like I- I've done that yeah. before in my life where I'm like, I, I well, I'm-, I'm not really a musical theater person. I'm like, well, I have run a musical theater company for 20 years. So I guess I kind yeah. of, but <laughs> right. like, it's easy to be like, I'm an actor. Like let's ask that to the music people or whatever, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But you know, that's not helpful to the people who are trying to, you know, facilitate your work. So you kind of just have to you put know. the hat on and wear it put that on where all right so let's talk about the process a little bit then so for you uh you know for Pigpen and for you as a contributor how do you begin um you know i know you may all have different processes uh you know among the seven of you but you know if, if you were going to start a new show which um i know you now so many different projects in the hopper that may seem intimidating but if you're going to write the old man in the moon part two or whatever you're gonna write a new Pigpen show how does that how does that happen how does it get off the ground yeah well, it's it starts with it usually starts with somebody having, you know, a strong kind of seed idea. You know, for the old man and the old moon, it was I think a story that Ryan told some summer camp theater students in high school or thereabouts about mm-hmm a giant whose job it was to fill the moon, you know, it was this little fairy tale that he made up and we all thought it was evocative. So we decided to bat it around for a while. And then it really is all of these different kind of disconnected bits of stuff that come together. So, you know, there's a lot of songwriters in the group. I mean, everyone writes songs, but there's some people who write songs consistently. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've got like a Google Drive just filled with all of this music that, you know, is kind of waiting to be plucked out. And is it and you then who who's doing more? Like, how does the listening? So if everyone's throwing yeah. it in, how do we then listen back and go, oh, that's yeah. cool. That might go before this. And that inspires me to do this. Like, how do just with seven to imagine with two, it's not that yeah. hard to go back and forth. But with seven and maybe four people are writing things. Mm-hmm. How who's then doing the listening? Who's the audience if people are, you know, everyone's contributing? Yeah. You know, I think we're largely relying on people to be proactive. You know, there are, you know, in some ways like Matt Nuremberger, who does a lot of things for the company, but one of the big things he does is he almost acts like a music supervisor in that, Uh like, as we're writing, you know, if you were to treat this like a TV show or a, um, 
you know, the way that music works in our, at least our like traditional shows, the way that we make them is less as less in the style of musical theater and more in the style of like a needle drop, you know, where something will be happening on stage. And then we have a song that accompanies a sequence that, you know, is maybe like obliquely related to what's happening in the story, but not, Mm -hmm. you know, not directly. And, um, do you so distinguish and does, call them plays with music, by the way? It's something I always want. Like, do you call it a musical when you're, what you're doing? Or do you say this is a play that has music? Or I does that matter to you as a distinction? It doesn't matter hugely to me. I think maybe it did at some point. I, we've published The Old Man and the Old Moon, and we're working on publishing a couple of other shows right now. And I can't remember what we landed on. I think we either said, I think The Old Man is subtitled A Folk Tale with Music. As opposed to a musical folk tale, uh-huh. which seems appropriate because you know there's not quite enough, you know, songs. Right, and most musical. of the music, to your point, is not carrying the story as much as it is the story. Exactly. and then there's movement and music that is almost right. uh, yeah to the side of the story. Or whatever. There's like but one not all. song. Some of it does. Yeah, there's there's one song that is really a point of view song um, from the protagonist's perspective, and the rest of the show is much more soundtracky mm-hmm. but matt listens to just tons and tons of recordings of stuff that we've done and is kind of like always like reorganizing them into different folders and so he i think has probably the most encyclopedic knowledge of you know all of the yeah, this stuff could go there exists. what's what's yeah. the thing you wrote a couple but maybe can that get here and because it feels like exactly. there's so much generation with your seven of you but then how does that get put into yeah um, in some ways that is the hardest part is you know we make all this stuff and then it kind of sits around because <laughs> for whatever reason we haven't we haven't figured out an efficient fast way to just like get new songs out into the right. world well it does feel like you're, you're what you're losing in efficiency it. you're gaining in creativity because it does feel like it's easy to be like okay we're gonna write a song of this and do this you know but i'm like but are you gonna get yeah. the same level of, of quality but uh, yeah. and are you so you may have answered my next question already then is it is it that you're just generating art in general, not I'm writing for this to be an album or I want this to be a concert or I want this to be a pig pen show. Is that generally true? I mean, I imagine for Water for Elephants, you were not going to randomly write Water for Elephants. So that had to be, a, you know, I'm contracted. Yeah. I'm working on this specific piece. Yeah, that was a little bit more, you know, we, we sat down with the book writer, Rick Ellis, and, you know, for, you know, several years we were in workshops with him, you know, doing song spotting, coming up with things, adapting to things as the 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 book changed and Mm -hmm. so that's been a very different process than our usual but it it goes both ways you know it is that you know kind of scrapbooky collagey thing where we're just taking stuff and seeing if it works together and it's also you know we really need a song right here that you know evokes this feeling or you know tells this part of the story so you know we have to write it but yeah so it can it could be either sense and then what about your personal creative process? So uh, a little birdie, which is your wife, MTCA coach, Catherine Wheeland, has told me that you are personally kind of writing a children's book. You know, it's going to be a pig pen children's book, but that's something that you're mm-hmm. taking on. How, how does that work now in terms of your creative process? If you've made all this different kind of theater art, writing kind of art, 
How do you then turn that into, I'm going to literally, it feels like anyone who's had a baby has thought to themselves, I could write a kid's book. If you ever read these things, you're like, there's 35 words. I could write this. But like, how do you yeah. then think to yourself, I'm going to put this together into what might be a, a pig pen children's book? Well, when we say children's book, I think what we've really been circling is is what they call in the publishing business, a middle grade novel, which is like a graphic you know, novel. It's, it's No, it's just a book that's for like middle schoolers basically so you know you any of the like you know rick riordan books or um there's just it's a huge encyclopedia brown for my encyclopedia brown or you know a wrinkle in time all of these books that are like for kids who are on yeah this is not a board book that my daughter is going to be reading in the next couple years no although that's on the list advanced though she may be yeah, I think Alex might be the one to. He as a new father, he has the most insight into into that. So he'll probably come up with something eventually. I will say the secret trick. This is for Alex. I'm just going to give him a, t- yeah. t- a hint. My daughter loves books that are songs. So like we have Forever Young, we have What a Wonderful World. She's obsessed right oh, now wow. with Sweet Child of Mine, which is not in that's not Elizabeth May or me. That's neither of our skill set is being like singing sweet child, but she loves it. She just wants us so to the, sing and she can't believe the book makes us sing. It's so exciting to her. These are just books that are like illustrated like song like it, you're like the Mickey Mouse ball like reading singing along as you flip the pages yes. from image to image. Full money grab. It's just like someone oh, yeah. already wrote a song. And they're like, let's just it's illustrate so it and make some more money off of it. Absolutely. Yeah, smart. So yeah. you guys can do that too. Just take Bremen or whatever. Take Pick a song that you love and just put it on the thing. Noted. Speaking of songs, yeah. shall we get to our game? And we have a couple more questions after, but I got to get to this game. Because sure. I spent hours preparing this game. Technically, and we'll see how the technical parts of it go. We're having a little bit of internet lag, so we're hoping that I'm going to succeed after all this. But this is a hurdle-based game. This is a name that tune style game. Okay. Which, if you ever played Hurdle, do you know what I mean? This is like oh, a yeah, H R D L. Yes, yes. Yeah, my younger yes. brother calls it a hurdle, which I hate. But it's a you have to hear it. It's like, yeah. yeah, like you hear a little yeah, bit, and then I'm, you can hear a little bit more. We're not going to get that technical. You're just going to get a very short snippet. And you're going to try to identify which pig pen song this is. It's mostly going to be pig pen songs. (laughs) But then a couple of them will not be pig pen songs too. So you have to either identify which song or you just, you don't have to tell me if it's not pig pen. But I'm going to give you probably the starting three seconds of these songs. How how do you think, before we play, how do you think you're going to do with this game? I think I will, I I think a 65% accuracy would be great. (laughs) Was that you said 55%? 65. Yeah. Just slightly over the Oh, 65. The line. Okay, great. That's yeah. That's pretty good. A monkey would be 50, so you think you'll do 65. You'll pass. I exactly. I don't want to go way out on a limb here. I feel like I do know our music, but I have never just listened to the first few seconds. So Well, for any pig pen fans playing along, do your best. We're gonna try to see if we can identify. The real challenge is gonna be knowing what they're no, called yeah. because you know, we've all of these songs have had like multiple titles over time. So hopefully we will only accept the title on the albums that I purchased. These are some of the few oh, albums shit. in my life I've actually purchased to support you. So wow. we're going to have uh, um, what the actual album title is. All right, here we go. We're going to start it off. It's an easy one. We're just getting a sense of how the game goes here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's Bremen. 
All right. Is that, that's Bremen. Is that too much time? Is that too easy? Well, that one, ha- you know, I, uh, you could play the first two notes and I would know that one. That was one of the first songs I wrote for the company. Hey. And I wrote it on the piano. So it has a very distinctive non-guitar. <laughs> it's, you can tell it's not written for a guitar. Yeah. All right. Let's try. Oh. Is this one of the 35%? Lo- is this Lonely As Me? That is not correct. No. That is not Lonely As Me. <gasps> oh, no. I'm going to give you a little more time with it. Oh, yep. Got it. You, you woke, I waited. You woke. Okay. I waited. You woke, I waited. Okay, I gave you one. I'm not going to be so nice every time. I'm not going to always give you a second chance at it. You know, I appreciate that's still, that. I don't know which one that counts as, but it's not it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Here we go. That's not us. That is not you. Very good. Very good. I thought I'd try, one, try an early one in there. It's from a band called Virginia Coalition. Oh, cool. We would never allow Arya to start a song with drums. It's just out That's of it. That's it. It's just not, that's not how it works. Okay, great. Here we go. Try another one. Uh, that's Just Like the Sea. Well done. Very well done. Okay, good. Just Like the Sea. Very distinctive beginning. Yeah. Is that also you because it's piano? Yes, although... I believe Matt actually wrote that original riff. The Dega the Dega thing is is him. And then I, I like kept going from there, but that part is him. I love it. All right, we'll try another one. Uh oh. Mm. Oh boy. That could so easily be a Ryan Melia song, but I don't think it is. I don't think it's one of ours. Is it? Uh, correct. That's one of my better fooling ones. That's Passenger. Oof, that's the band close. Passenger. Oh yeah. Ooh, that really sound. I was like this. I was trying to find one that could sound theoretically like you in my voice. Yeah. No, that was good. Well spotted. Okay. Great. You're you're so far doing perfectly with the one one second strike hit here. Sure. That's Mayfly. Mayfly. A bonus track. Yeah. Excellently done. Ben wrote. Ben Ferguson. Ben. Congratulations, Ben. It's a fantastic song. Um, here we go. Wow, that was so quiet. Mm. Again, I don't know if that was us. Mumford and Sons, Mumford and Sons, which oh, must be the most compared. Now you're playing to hardball. You. Yeah, yeah. Mumford and Sons compared to you, a very similar sound uh, around that time. Oh, it was really a blessing when they like hit their like '80s wave because you know then we could carve out our own identity. <laughs> yes, correct. They're like, all right, fine. They got their own thing. Is that We Stand Alone? We Stand Alone. You're doing perfectly with your songs so far. You actually have gotten perfectly for all the songs, but you're doing very, very well. You seem uncertain sometimes when it's not you, but so far you've been doing great. All right, a couple more. Okay. Uh Uh-oh, I take back what I said about not letting Arya start a song because that is all's well with Jose. With with come on, that's what I was trying to get you with the this is him. I thought maybe there's a chance on the the yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Doing great. I think it's not us. I mean, a lot of this is just if I can't immediately recognize the song, then I'm guessing it's not us. So far, amazingly, you're crushing it. Yeah, that's the Lumineers. The Lumineers also a similar sounding band around that time. And our very last one. Here we go. Oh, yeah. This is us. But what is the song called? I need to get you on one. You need to show that you're human and get one wrong. Well, I guessed this earlier, but I'm going to guess it again. Is it As Lonely As Me? 
it is as lonely as me. There it is. A perfect, okay. a perfect round, maybe minus the one for not um, getting it, but you've done wonderfully. If any of you enjoyed those little snippets that you heard, please, where, where do you make the most money if people download? Apple Music, Spotify, what do you want? I guess probably Apple Music, but, you know, honestly, we're happy for people to listen. We're not really... Yes, it's lovely to pay people for their music. Too nice. Too nice, dude. I'm trying to get you the one-seventh of a penny you're going to get from a download here. I'm trying to well, hook then, you up. Come you know, on. they need to write us for the $200 signed vinyl that we provide upon request. That's but. right. That's what they should do is for the signed vinyl. It's the only way to listen. Yeah, I cut you off on a couple of times during the, the game, too. Was there some things you wanted to say in terms of what was the experience of listening back to songs that you've written? I made poor Cameron Adams, who's been in 13 Broadway shows. I made her do like lines <laughs> from her lines. She's understudied. She was like, this is killing me. I know somewhere oh, in my brain. Oh, it that's is. rough. <laughs> um, what was the experience of listening back to these ones that you know so well? Yeah, I haven't heard them in a while. You know. The past few years has been, we haven't done much live music together. And a lot of what we have done is, is new music. So, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's fun to revisit. Memory lane. Um, Memory lane. And I didn't do some of your more recent stuff, partially also because these are the only two albums I've purchased. And so that's how I could play them for you. What a world. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the industry itself. So you certainly have now, like so many people have navigated this pandemic and have been in some rooms with people in, in this case, kind of interestingly, I think it seems like the same room in 2018, 2019, 2020, and then again in 2022. Do you feel like, do you notice a difference in rooms in general in the, in the sort of industry post-COVID and pre-COVID? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot less certainty about what's next. You know, I think that the first 10 years we were out of school, we were sort of part of an apparatus that was humming along, you know, mm -hmm. not necessarily functionally, but, you know, predictably. And um, so much has happened in the last five years that has just changed the way that people think about, well, everything. <laughs> I mean, even before, you know, we got to the, you know, the, the last couple of months of, you know, AI generative stuff it's been you know crazy and chaotic and you know broadway has you know we went from soon after leaving school you know we went from like the biggest musical hit on broadway you know possibly ever with hamilton to um you know this crazy cycle of you know hits and misses and and you know shutdowns mm -hmm. and pop-ups and so i think no one really knows what's coming next and you know there's still a real uh people are throwing themselves at, at their work you know i think people are maybe a little bit more used to i don't want to say disappointment but a little bit more used to things kind of falling apart and having to pick them back up again than they were previously mm-hmm so yeah, the rooms have changed, but the mood for us right now uh, in our rehearsal room is really, you know, positive and, you know, everyone's just very excited to be working on a new musical, mm -hmm. which most of the people in our room haven't done for a while. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, actually, that, uh, you know, the overwhelming sense of is sort of gratitude to be back when you sort of feel what is lost, um, even with some of the changes. 100%, yeah. 
I'd love to talk a little bit about, I know you had a great relationship with your parents who I got to meet at your wedding, which was wonderful last year. Yes. yes. But uh, what, what advice would you have for sort of parents, you know, is, what do you feel like they did right in supporting you? And then any advice to other parent listeners out there in terms of what you would suggest people do to support their kids in the arts? Yes. Well, certainly, you know, if they're listening to this podcast, they're already doing a great job uh, because... Thank you. Plug. Thank you. Download it on Apple Music. Exactly. <laughs> the level of interest in, in your kid's, you know, creative career that it takes to throw on a podcast about college auditioning is, you know, I would say beyond the pale of commitment. So that's great. Congratulations. Well done. It's just, it's just barely adequate guys. That's not true. Don't listen to that. <laughs> oh, okay, that's no, yeah. the very bare minimum is listening to every episode to the end. No, there's more, there's more. Stay tuned. Yeah. And Charlie will tell you yeah. what else. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I think fostering someone's interests and that is that delicate balance of, you know, encouraging someone without, without making it their entire identity, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, because we all know the parents who see talent in their kids and then sort of crush them with the pressure of, you know, fulfilling that talent. And I was lucky enough to have parents who, you know, absolutely were supportive and, you know, drove me to, you know, all around the country for college auditions and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, they weren't like, they gave me space to, you know, make my own mistakes and learn my own lessons and, uh, and yeah, I think maybe the only other thing I would say is that, you know, there's not, especially now, there's just not going to be a single path, uh, mm -hmm. a single kind of stable path or, you know, game plan for, for an artist to take to, you know, reach, you know, the promised land of success and stability and mm -hmm. all of the things that, of course, you want for your kid, you know, there's going to be some crazy zigs and zags and the industry is going to change so much that, you know, I think for a lot of people who saw their kids, you know, sitting in front of a computer making these weird like YouTube shows in 2010, mm -hmm. never would it have in their wildest dreams have turned into, you know, a profitable, profitable business or like, a way to like live in this world. And I think everyone was pretty surprised by that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I would just keep your capacity for surprise uh, open because it's going to be, it's going to get very surprising. <laughs> so true. And that's pretty great advice to the young artists out there too, in terms of the, you know, staying open to their own capacity for surprise. Um, yeah. So we're going to plug Water for Elephants. How would someone follow this if they wanted to, to check out more on I, I want to hear the music or I want to go see you guys and you're at a, starting an out of town run right now. So Water for Elephants is about to have its first production uh, at the Alliance Theater uh, in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, so you can go on, you know, their website, Alliance. I think it's Alliance Theater.com. They're going to Google Alliance Theater. Do let's be honest. Nobody, nobody does a typey typey. <laughs> That's fair. And, that starts previews in mid or late May, I want to say. But again, go to the website. Mm -hmm. And you can follow us on Instagram, Pigpen Theater Co. Um, you can visit our website, pigpentheater.com, um, where we, you know, put updates to things and 
And just the way we've been doing this in this episode, isn't it amazing? He gives pig pens, but does not his own. Not his own social. Don't follow Dan. Follow pig pen. Well, you could try, but Country I don't self. really... I don't really have uh, my own social media presence. It's all through the company. I love it. So a true cult that might change at some point, but <laughs> I love it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for the time today, man. This was such a joy to get to chat with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Charlie. Oh yeah. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dan. Uh, He is a really interesting mix of being one of the smartest people in every room he's in, but also incredibly humble and self-effacing, almost to a fault. Very hard to get that man to brag about himself. Which leads me to my takeaway from today. It's about something we touched on briefly in that imposter syndrome or feeling like you don't belong in some rooms. I obviously don't know what everyone's experience is, but I know more people than not will have had this experience at some point in their lives where they feel like, I don't belong in this room, right? Maybe they feel like, I'm a fraud. These people are all geniuses. What the hell am I doing in this particular room? The obvious advice is that this is an instance of fake it till you make it, that everybody doesn't belong in certain rooms until they do belong. And that is definitely true, that with time and experience, you're going to feel more comfortable. But I also think that this is a cultivatable skill to some degree in that the same way actors can work on actively taking up space on stage, and we talked about that in a recent episode about how to take up space generously, not apologizing when it's your moment, but not sucking up all the oxygen in the room when it's not. I do think as a human being, you can help yourself with some positive self-talk surrounding trust. Even when it's not easy to trust that you are not a fraud, which I've certainly felt that way, You can trust the smart people around you who put you in that position. You didn't get selected for this part out of a ping pong ball lottery. Somebody very smart saw something in you and put you in that position. And somehow to me, if you make it about that, it's easier to swallow. And for me, an easier objective to achieve in validating someone else's trust in me and and trying to show up well for their sake than if I tell myself, okay, really try to impress everyone in this moment, right? To force a sports analogy, it's like when a coach makes you a captain on a team If you can think of yourself as an extension of that trusted coach's voice and then therefore confidently use your own voice because you trust and respect this person who chose you, you can focus a bit less on, hey, why me and not this other person who's also good? Or, you know, what do I need to say to them to prove that I belong in this position? Which I think those are less helpful thoughts than, you know, what what actually needs to be heard in terms of your voice in the room. The comedic version of this that I often use on Elizabeth if she's poking fun of me, you know, if I'm doing something weird or gross or worthy of mockery in some way, I'll often turn to her and say, hey, you're the crazy person who's choosing to marry me. Whereas I, of course, am quite sane in my wonderfully choice selection. I've also done the same thing in rehearsal rooms, too, and I invite you to do this, though maybe not quite so um, audibly. But I remember a, a director friend who cast me in a few things once was kind of questioning a choice I made in rehearsal, which I made like a... You know, one of those throwing paint against the wall, pretty free kind of choice, which after which I knew it would not make its way into the production, but we were free, we were trying things, whatever. And he was like, Charlie, what was that? And I turned to him and I said, hey, you cast me, right? Implying that any craziness that came out of me was at least partially on him. And while, of course, it's not 100% the case that the director is responsible for everything any actor does, having that trust of, hey, this person wants all of my choices, good and bad and the ones that we don't know about yet right? It's a really freeing place to be as an artist. That's true as an actor, as a writer, wherever kind of art you're trying to make. You know, if you can think, I really respect this person who put me in this room and I trust that they knew what they were getting in selecting me. And so they're going to get my full best self as a result. 
and then we'll go from there with what works, what doesn't work, but it won't be all on me and the responsibility to prove why I belong. If I go, I'm just going to trust that this person put me in this room for a reason. And there you have it, another podcast in the books. This podcast was expertly produced by the wonderful Megan Cordier. You can follow us at Mapping the College Edition on the gram or other places in our show notes. And you can head to mtca.nyc for help with your individual college prep. If you're moved to give us a little review, either on Apple Podcast or a Google review for MTCA, we'd be endlessly appreciative. But of course, we understand if you don't, your ears and your attention are gift enough. To my young artists out there mapping their journeys, go listen to some Pigpen. I think you'll be inspired. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.